0: Hello everyone, welcome to A Russian's World. Today we have a special guest, uh, um, Amy Edelstein is here. Uh, hi, how are you doing?
1: Hi, nice to be here, thanks so much.
0: Wonderful, so can we get just get started by you introducing yourself in any way you see fit and then we'll talk about your book as well.
1: <laughs> sure, my name is Amy Edelstein and I'm the founder of a nonprofit called Inner Strength Education which brings mindfulness and systems thinking to urban youth. We've worked with more than 17,000 students with a three-month program in the last eight years. So that's what currently occupies my time and attention. I started my own mindfulness practice in 1978 and have been an avid studier, publisher, researcher, and general explorer of different philosophies and systems of thinking and transformation since then. So I came to this before it was, uh, became as popular as it is now. I'm happy that it's so popular. It was different uh, 40 years ago. And I'm excited to share the insights from my new book, uh, Adventure in Zanskar, which I wrote about a time That even though it feels very close and present to me right now, was it was really almost 40 years ago, 39 years ago.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. And again, yeah, mindfulness when it wasn't cool, when it wasn't trendy. So that that is really important because uh, you are a trendsetter. And so, But it's good when people recognize that and come back and acknowledge it and, and, and follow it. And I completely, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of mindfulness. I think it is hugely important. And I want to get into that uh, here a bit later. But let's, let's start off with your book. So the title is Adventure in Sanskar: A Young Woman's uh, Solitary Journey to Reach Physical and Metaphysical Heights. I like the fact that you're using metaphysical as well because you're high in the mountains and so you're in the tibetan plateau in sanskar which is in india which is the oldest buddhist uh, valley in the world and so my first question is what drew you towards that place
1: i was i was drawn there for two reasons one was just the high mountains the the valley floor is 3000 meters above sea level And Zanskar because it's ringed by these very high mountains that uh, go up to something, I think the highest is around 24,000 feet above sea level, which is really high. Um, So that was part of it, but the, the area itself has been protected from outside invaders. And the culture had remained pretty much the same for many hundreds of years. It's one of the oldest Buddhist valleys in the world. It became Buddhist before Tibet was Buddhist and then then had the Bon religion which is a meditative system as well. And when Tibetan Buddhism came into the Zanskar Valley um, more like the 13, 14, 1500s. And so now the the Zanskari culture there, the people are similar to Tibetan people, the language is very similar, but it has slightly different roots. What's interesting about it now is because uh, Tibet had been taken over in 1958 and much of the cultural heritage that had been uninterrupted for hundreds of years was deeply interrupted and, and there were many refugees that you can't quite see a place that exemplifies an unbroken Buddhist way of life in the way you could in 1983 in Zanskar. So the mountains drew me and the sense of this culture drew me. and The fact that it had only been open to tourism in 1960, 1976, I think. So it was something like seven years before I had gone there that it was, Opened It was hard to get to, so not many tourists came anyway. But before that, because of where it's situated, geopolitically, it was such a hotbed that the Indian government had kept it closed to because you never knew who was a tourist and who was there for ulterior motives. But so your listeners understand the, the little, if you look at a map, that finger of India that points up, that's where Zanskar is. On one side, it's um, the Tibetan region, which is now ruled by the Chinese. On the west side is Kashmir, which is part of India, but is a Muslim, primarily, predominantly Muslim state. And there was always some unrest and conflicts. Above uh, Kashmir, a little bit north, is Pakistan. And then just above that, which doesn't exactly border on Zanskar, but it's just so close, it's sort of spitting distances Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and you know, parts of um, you know, some conflicted areas in eastern Russia. So it's just like this really kind of interesting little geographical gem of a place that became nestled between geopolitical conflicts. So it was closed. And when I went there, it wasn't easy to get to. There weren't roads running through it. There was no electricity. There was no GPS. There was no internet. There was very little tourism. And I just walked. I went on my own without somebody, you know, I carried everything I had and I met villagers and sometimes they invited me in and sometimes I slept outside and Sometimes I walked with people and sometimes I walked alone and it was an opportunity to just immerse myself in that way of life and to use the time as an opportunity to better understand some of the principles that I had learned on some retreats that I had already done in Nepal and different sections of North India, try to understand what concepts of interconnectedness or impermanence or the nature of mind? What does all this really mean when you can just sit and think about it? So that's that's what I did.
0: Yeah, but uh, it's mountains. So there's this, this challenge. What is it about mountains that uh, people want to climb? And we previously had uh, Michael Shaw on the show who uh, wrote a story of karma about his experience in the uh, Lost Valley in the Himalayas. And it's just like, it just seems like What is your mountaineering experience there? I mean, did you have, uh, did you train for it? Was it something that you've been doing or you just threw yourself into the adventure?
1: I was 21 at the Mm -hmm. time. So when you're 21, you you have youth on your side. So you're generally in better shape. Um, You don't really recognize need to plan or things
0: that- And and, and we know, so in the up to 25, your brain is still not fully developed. The prefrontal cortex has not fully developed. So risk assessment might be an issue. But I'm very glad you did that because I think that's like the and you mentioned here your book is an inner quest as well as a travelogue, and uh, and and that is hugely important. It's not just I want to climb that mountain. I did it. Here's uh, I, I could write it on my resume on my CV. No, it's like something that you wanted to experience alongside these um um the relationship between the inner journey and what we do as we are traveling and um, uh, walking in the high. Himalayas studying philosophy and meditation I think that is something that is truly impressive and Michael Shaw would talk about these Buddhist uh, monks talking to him and then inside like behind him there's this like amazing view of the world and so it's just like so much more impressive I would think of being in the place where Buddhism is also lived and practiced. And Buddhism is something I'm very fascinated by myself. I I just love it. I love the insights. But being there, I think that is completely different. It's not a meditation retreat. You're like in a physical place. I I find that fascinating.
1: When you're there, so there are a lot of different forms of Buddhism, as I'm Mm -hmm. sure your listeners know, and the Buddhism from Southeast Asia developed in a certain way also influenced by the geography and the climate and the way of life and the culture. So you have Japanese Zen and the art aesthetic. You have Theravadan Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Thailand, uh, which has to do with their aesthetic and the way Buddhism came. In Zanskar, you you understand a little bit better, all of the metaphors that come out of Tibetan Buddhist tradition. You understand when they describe awareness as the clear light of bliss because when you're in this very high elevation you're the light is different and the quality of air is different and when you're crossing a mountaintop that's 5100 meters you look down on snow peaks you look down on glaciers you're you're really at the top of the world and you're standing there and all you see spread before you are these tremendous peaks with their nobility and majesty. And when the Tibetan Buddhists describe giving offerings to the Buddha to the Buddhas, that your offering is so large, it's as large as Mount Meru, which is this mythical, huge mountain, you have a sense of what that looks like. So you understand that those metaphors and and symbolism came out of their lived environment and it all really makes sense. So you can start to understand how, how to look at the nature of mind as that clear light behind the clouds you can under you can get a visceral experiential sense and of course the isolation of the mountains helps you really recognize that that although our environment influences us it's our mental environment that is mostly what influences what happens around us and how we see it because you can be walking up you know a really difficult stretch of you know, incline and you're happy and you're feeling confident and it's hard, but you just go one step after another and each step is victory. Or you can be struggling with self-doubt and discouragement and loneliness. And every step feels like you're carrying an extra 2000 pounds. This, the, the way the path didn't change, but your, your mental state changed. And so in the Tibetan Buddhist teachings, what they're really saying um, over and over again is that all of the imagery or deities or practices are all really metaphors for your own quality and your own capacity. They're metaphors for your own mind. So they may talk about visualizing a deity like Tara or Avalokiteshvara outside of you, but really what they're saying is that's in that's a metaphor or form that you can look at that symbolizes your own capacity for compassion or for generosity, for wisdom. So you're never looking, you're never externalizing. You're always recognizing that these qualities and capacities have to do with the nature of your own mind and your own consciousness. And when you're in an environment like that, it does help you sink into that in an experiential way.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to to embody this, to embed it into our lives, these these, uh, um, teachings, these thoughts, and so on. That's one of the problems I have with philosophy, because it's like, and even many people see Buddhism as a philosophy, and they just think of grasping it. It's like, oh, I understand what this means. Oh, I get it. But it doesn't, as long as it it resonates with you, with your whole being. And you mentioned in your book, the Goldilocks principle of, of humans. And I really like that. I think that's definitely true, because. Uh, we are in a, in a very interesting position as humans, uh, because we have, we're have we between the animals, but we're also between uh, the step towards getting towards enlightenment, so we're in the, the right place, and you say we have enough free will to dive into an inherent Buddha. And I like also the term enough free will because uh, free will is something, and some people debate it and so on. I think we have a certain amount, but we really have to tap into it. And what happens is many people understand intellectually what Buddhism is, but they don't connect with their emotions. So it's like something that's out there. And that is the main problem for me with philosophy. There's all these insights but you're not using them in your daily life. And so, yeah, and I think we are in that position where we can take that leap into enlightenment or not, you know, and and that is where we do have a bit of free will.
1: Right, because we don't know what cards were dealt with. We don't know whether our past actions are influencing our life now or whether... There's some generalized karmic pot that manifests. You know, I don't know how personalized it is. I don't really have experience at those levels. I think about it a lot. I read different things and look into my experience. But we have choice over how we're going to respond to our situation. And that's really what we can focus on with surety. Uh, So, some people get dealt a really rough hand of cards and they make the most of it and they grow and develop as human beings and they express extraordinary compassion. Nelson Mandela was in prison for 27 years, Um, Mahatma Gandhi rose to really care for the plight of those who were of a different caste than him and to recognize which was very unusual in that time you know to recognize that his privilege needed to be overturned so that there would be equal access for everyone and now why did those two individuals come out of their circumstances caring so deeply well they made choices in the face of a lot of suffering to have vision for the future. So if we can make choices and have vision for the future, regardless of what our current circumstances are, then you don't know what's possible for, for humanity. But if we're constantly harping on the negative of our experiences, that's where our, that's where our meditation is gonna be. And it's gonna stay there. It's, if you're focused and meditating on problems, It's basically that's that's the sphere you're going to work in. And if you're focused and meditating on higher possibilities, uh, whether that's the end of apartheid or the you know decolonization of India or enlightenment, um, they're higher possibilities that have a they have a magnetic pull, so you feel lifted above the immediate circumstance and we're in a time right now where there's just a lot of difficulty there's a lot of conflict there's a lot of pressure on the earth you know and the environmental situation is is deeply concerning the you know colonialism and materialism consumerism have really reached a point where things are falling apart And the response to that has not been the most enlightened response. So the more we can start meditating, not on the problems, which we know, but on what the enlightened response is, the better chance we'll have of moving forward.
0: I go back to mention again Nelson Mandela and uh, his experience of prison, and I read how he did not feel imprisoned. In fact, in in his mind, he was freer than most of us that are walking around freely. And it's it's that perception of like again not letting negativity take over and not being uh, uh, being pushed down by all these like toxic thoughts that we have. But of saying, I'm doing the right thing. And uh, um, I've seen uh, recently the movie uh, Terrence uh, Malik's film, A Hidden life, which is about this, this basically this Austrian common person who did not sal- did, do the Hitler salute in his village, and he got arrested. And so he is and the most uh, compelling scene for me was the scene where the uh, the officer, the Nazi is, is, is drilling him because they're, they're torturing him. They say, you have to accept that. And he says, No, I'm free. I'm actually I'm free. And I feel free. And then the, uh, the Nazi officer kind of like laughs at him and says, well, if you're free, why are you in prison right now? And uh, the, the Austrian guy says, I don't know. But it's, it's that sense. It's like, I'm doing the right thing. This is what I am. This is connecting with, uh, from a, with the a spiritual source of who I am. And I will not do this that you're asking me. And so he, he held on to that. And so the same was with, with Nelson Mandela, who ended up uh, being free and 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 actually uh, and making a lot of changes. But he held on to that, that it's it's more than an idea. It's uh, more than an ideal as well. It's that, that sense of I'm doing the right thing. This is who I am. This is my core authentic self. And I will go on with it despite the negativity oppression torture and all that is going around and i find that formidable and it is it is a really high standard we we it's hard, really hard for us to get there but we can get that sense of freedom and i think that's hugely important to to cultivate that
1: yeah and and it is a high standard but it's within the realm of possibility exactly yes. and that's the thing is that we if we if we don't set our sights far enough away from us, then we won't end up with the resilience to deal with the obstacles. Because if you have a huge goal that that's so far in the future, if you want to, if you want to realize, if you want to become a Buddha, if you want whatever that means to you in terms of what what's what's the most exalted. Possibility you could imagine, you know, for care and compassion and discrimination and wisdom and lightness of being and connection and generosity and joy. So whatever that, whatever the term is that that you think of, but if you if you put your sights there, and then you're like, they're going to be obstacles. But of course they're going to be obstacles because it's it's such a big mountain to climb. It's, mm-hmm. it's back to the adventure in zanskar You know, I was. I was crossing mountains that were greater than 5,000 meters. So some days were hard. Some days my legs were tired. Some days I felt like I couldn't make it, but the goal was so lofty and I was committed Mm -hmm. and I had no choice. I couldn't really turn back. It wasn't gonna be any easier. So you just keep going forward. And if you're that committed, and you know you can't turn back, then you just deal with the hardship. If you're not that committed to a really big goal, then in the the face of the hardship, you're just gonna go, ah, I'm gonna stay in bed. I'm not gonna try.
0: But it's that that faith and confidence that uh, many people are lacking here in terms of also mental health. I think a lot of us are just like traumatized by things and we are afraid of things and we are afraid of facing Uh, Many things and avoid them, and and it's actually in in terms of Buddhism, we we realize that this is actually just our, our mind projecting various things, and it's an illusion. There are a lot of bad things happening, of course, in the world, but we we got this, and it's that sense of like I can do this, I can, and it's not just positive thinking. It's like okay, yeah, I got no. It's like feeling it in the fibers, in all your fibers of your being, I can climb this mountain. And I think we all have those mountains, but a lot of us either don't want to face it. We don't want to take on the challenges. We're afraid we will fail and we just let it drag us down. And I think that where mindfulness can put that into perspective, I think. I think
1: I would say it slightly differently if I mm-hmm. might, because sure. you don't. we don't know if we're gonna succeed, but we know we can give everything to
0: trying. Well, I mean, it depends, the guess, thing, but the question the is, t- what do you mean by success?
1: Well, you know, it, it might have happened that I didn't, you know, that I slipped and fell and I didn't make it over the mountain. That would That's within the realm of possibility. Or, you know, it could have happened that, you know, Victor Frankl didn't survive in the concentration camps or Nelson Mandela died in prison. Those things could have happened. Mm-hmm. So we can't, you know, and, and I, I work in uh, a city where there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of violence. And so there are objectively very real challenges to life. So we can set our sights on Buddhahood, whether we make it or not, is not exactly the point. We just have to give everything to go as far as we can. And even if we have doubt, we do it anyway. And even if we think we can't make it, we do it anyway because it matters so much. And that exactly. care and that passion and that sense that it, it matters so much, it will take us as far as our men, momentum will go and as far as we can. But we know when we've come to the end of our life, we have nothing to regret because we did everything we could. We, you know, Even face of doubt, even in the face of discouragement, even in the face of dark night of the soul, even in the face of practical challenges, we had that vision and that carried us. And then, you know, what's going to be, well, we can only do our best.
0: Exactly. No, that's exactly, we're actually exactly on the same page, but by success, I don't, uh, I mean, just being yourself, you know, connecting to your true authentic self, the success doesn't actually matter. And the thing is, I mean, we do wanna pursue it, but it doesn't really matter. Every success is a failure because once you've reached that, there is other things you want to reach. So it's not that, it, it, like Buddhahood, we don't know, that would be the ultimate success, but I don't even, I wouldn't think about that. I am just like, okay, this is the path, but you know, let's see what happens. But it's important because once you take those steps and if you fail on your mountain quest, okay, That's okay, that's not a failure. That's just, okay, I didn't make it. That's okay, I tried my best, right? And that's what you would say. And I'll try something else instead. And try to climb another mountain or a different kind of mountain. And that is my point. We're so focused on, on things that we think is important in our lives in terms of success, a good job, a lot of money and so on. But in reality, it doesn't fulfill us. And it's quite interesting. I, I, I found it about people who win the lottery are the least fortunate people in the world psychologically and, and even emotionally, even though they have it made. But then there's all these things that come with that success, that this negative uh, byproducts, because that is not important. What is important is that how you feel about it and whether you are uh, uh, not that well off, as long as you're, you're satisfied and happy and you are doing your best, of course, not promoting laziness in any way, um, that is important, right? And I think we are deluded by what makes success. And that's why we see all these like uh, rich and famous who are not happy. And we see that and it comes out in, in, in actions and behaviors that you thought would never happen. It's like, I thought this person was truly happy. no. They are not, right? So I think that's, and Buddhism helps us to see that, that a lot of this this suffering that we impose upon ourselves is really self-inflicted. That quest for uh, perfection is an illusion. It doesn't exist. And you don't want it. You don't want perfection. You want to try your best, but there is no point that you will make things perfect. And that's something I truly believe. And it's actually a sign of a weakness when you try to look for perfection because it is already perfect. What are you looking for? Mm.
1: I think, you know, it's, it's I, I, we brought up reality TV. Wouldn't it be awesome if, if some director found a way to highlight the people who were happiest And what really, you know, happiest from that deep sense of equanimity and generosity and love and connectedness and patience and and perseverance and wisdom. So if we could have a reality TV show that looked at those people instead of Survivor or um, some of the other reality TV shows and, and highlighted, what is it? What are those elusive inner qualities and attitudes that bring this phenomenal joy and- And I and think it matters though. So. I mean,
0: To me, it doesn't matter what brings joy to them, it's what brings joy to me. And that is the thing that we need to connect with, that what is it that brings joy to me? And you have found it by not only that mountain that brought a lot of joy to you, but uh, with your organization. Let's actually talk about that. I'd like to just briefly mention that if, if you're okay with that. The nonprofit Inner Strength Education in 2014, you started it and you're looking at mindfulness, which is again, something that I, I highly encourage and I see it different from meditation though. And um, just to make that clear, i let's see on the same uh, page here, uh, meditation can be misused. Meditation can be used as an escape, as the trying to escape your reality and say, okay, I want to go there and I feel peaceful and like a place. Whereas mindfulness, I see it more as embodied. Like I am mindful, I am in the present, I am in my surroundings, and it's something that we can do on a constant basis. You don't need a room to sit down, you just... I'm taking a walk, I'm mindful. And I think that's important. Uh, you also look at uh, uh, systems thinking, which is, um, I really like that. It's basically for me like CBT, but more focused CBT. Mm. I was like, this is where I want to be and so on. Like having clear visions, as you're saying, clear goals. That is hugely important as long as the goals are not overwhelming. We don't get disappointed. We don't feel failure. Yeah. Uh, part of what... Um...
1: Yeah, mindfulness can be both as you describe mindful awareness, so paying Mm. attention in the present, Mm -hmm. it can also be a group of techniques and tools like watching the breath or watching sensation as as a guide. And systems thinking, we look at large scale systems and how it impacts us personally so 300 million years of the development of the brain. What does it mean to be a paleontologist of the self? How can we dig into our responses and look at theories of how we react based on 300 million years of brain science? So we're looking at large scale systems and how has culture changed as we've grown in the postmodern era to have more agency, more choice, more um, opportunity for individual expression, but less social support. How does that compare to simpler earlier times where we all wore the same shoes and the same dress and ate the same food and sang the same songs. So there was less opportunity for individuation, but there was greater social support. So there are ups and downs of both. So we're looking at these large scale systems and how does that impact you? And I work with adolescents. So I work with ninth through 12th graders in the American system. That's something like 13 to 19, you know, roughly, you know, 14 to 18 year olds. And that's the time when when youth are beginning to individualize and think about, well, what are my passions? What do I want to be? What do I care about? What's my hairstyle? What's my What's my unique expression? Who am I and what am I doing here? What, what makes sense of life for me? And so I bring this more complex program which is mindfulness tools, compassion to building tools. And then an understanding from both an evolutionary biological sense, as well as culture change. And as well as looking at the systems of relatedness between you. So they can, they can, there are entry points for different types of learners and everyone can benefit. We've worked with 17,000 students uh, in the last eight years. So that's a lot of kids.
0: Yeah, Wonderful. Yeah. And uh, evolutionary psychology, is it's, it's huge important for me evolution, just like where we come from and not just on a personal level, but also as on a human level, that's hugely important. A lot of people ignore that or don't want to recognize the influence that it has. And the, the idea is also, you can't change overnight. This is something that you have to slowly work towards. And if there's stuff that you do not like about yourself or about your society and culture, you have to take the first steps and it doesn't, happen, people are really impatient and they want it to happen overnight. It doesn't work that way. And you wouldn't want it to happen that way because then it's not fully integrated. I think that's important. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I I look at ourselves, we've had an experience of a time before the cell phone, before uh, this technology. And I'm so grateful. I mean, this was, again, not by choice, right? This is something that happened to us. But I'm so grateful to have had that, to have had the experience of rotary phones to have had uh, the experience of not being constantly connected. And I feel for younger people who have missed out on it and who don't know what it feels like, but we're, we're lucky because we have a bit of both worlds. we've experienced both and experiencing the other. And we can see, and again, there's no, not one I say, oh, it was so much better in the good old days. No, I think it's like, again, pros and cons. Some good things, some bad things.
1: Exactly, exactly. But it is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. It's a huge difference. Um, I, I realize that the young people I work with—they—they—they they, they have no idea what it's like to not have an internet to find the answer to things. Um, when you had to go to the library and the encyclopedias you looked at were 10 years old and they didn't really have everything you wanted. Um,
0: I I actually took out an encyclopedia and took it home with me because I didn't have time. I went to read at home and then I got a phone call from our library. It's like, well, you can't take it out. (laughs) But that was my drive for knowledge. And I I, I always think like, I wish kind of I had this, this technology because then I wouldn't have to steal, quote unquote steal, because they had my ID anyway. But it's like, you know, and, and I don't think people appreciate that, you know.
1: Right,
0: yeah. right. Yeah. And so you also talk about the conscious classroom. And I'm very interested in that, too, because I'm an educator and I've been doing that for, for 20 years. And I, I think it's, it's hugely important because our perception of education is changing, too. It's shifting in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't always been that way and I found it frustrating and that was the bad part of our time where you just have to listen to a lecture and you have to take in everything they're telling and it's it's often boring because not a lot of them were good at lecturing and also our mind cannot take in all that stuff so it's 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 normal to get bored after an hour, an hour and a half of droning. So, uh, and I think now, now we're it's more like it's more interactive. It's more taking in the account, taking into account the knowledge the, of the student, their capacities, and working with that instead of trying to instill our own ideas onto that and and it really like critical thinking just uh, developing that and making them think and making them disagree with you i i love it when my students disagree with me it's like thank you i don't feel i don't feel bad about it this is great because you're learning
1: (laughs) exactly exactly so with the conscious classroom programs we support both teachers and students to as you said, to develop critical thinking, to develop that love of learning that, mm-hmm. that you describe of yourself, the questioning, the thirst, the wanting to think about things and put things together in an innovative way and wanting to explore inner and outer, how do we work? How does the world work? How do we make it work better? Not just fixing this or that problem, but really how, how can we lean into this? in a multi-dimensional way and see where we end up. And I agree with you that there's a lot more project-based learning. And in some ways, the pandemic, which forced a lot of schools online, forced a lot more independent work on the students' part. I think overall, the virtual learning had a very detrimental effect. That's what I've seen. Um, It's been really hard on students uh, as well as teachers, but really hard on the students. But as we come back together in the classroom, I think we're in a shift now where there's a recognition that a lot of the standard material can be online. And then a lot of the time can be in exploration. And so a teacher is guiding the exploration. The teacher is teaching a student how to learn, Mm -hmm. which is probably the most valuable thing we can do as teachers. And that's why I bring them the self exploration and the mindfulness through inner strength education because that was the most important thing for me.
0: I think for me before the pandemic I had a very negative view of technology and virtual learning and so on. But since then I've changed and I think there's a lot of potential and always is most negative I disagree I think there's a lot of positive there. but. Ideally, we want to hybrid and really taking advantage of both possibilities. Same way, if we could go back to a time where we have maybe a few days without a cell phone and other days that we use a cell phone, that would be ideal. And I think we really need to explore the, the technology that we have at hand and really take advantage of it in in terms of learning, in terms of growth, in terms of mental health. And it is happening, and I'm I'm very happy to see that, but it can't be the only way, right? So we need that that person-to-person contact. Uh, A Zoom call is great, but if we're in the same room, it would be so much better. I agree with that. But however, it makes our life more convenient. It helps us. And I think uh, really take advantage of both is, is, is hugely important in yeah. education, especially.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And and it's it's also creating like a global uh, connection there, because with with this, we can have, you can work with students who are in your district, but you can also work with students who are in a completely different country, who are maybe from Sanskar. If they have the internet connection, they can also uh, take advantage of your lessons. And I think that is globalizing everything in, in a good way, not in a, here in a negative sense.
1: Yeah, well, I've certainly benefited from being able to be live in a more global culture. I mean, it's been great speaking with you about all of these things. I I really uh, applaud you on having this podcast and bringing these ideas together and exploring philosophically. It's been really great to be able to talk with you.
0: Yes, thank you so much. So just want to remind everyone, uh, the book is Adventure in Sanskrit, a young woman's solitary journey to reach physical and metaphysical heights. And you also have your nonprofit uh, inner strength education that you started. And you also have a book on the conscious classroom. So I would like to plug that in as well. And thank you so much for being here on Rashi's World, for talking about these ideas. We've moved from mountains to Buddhism, to the classroom. Just wonderful conversation here. Thank you so much for being here, Amy. Thank you. Take care.